I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi there, and welcome to the Stock Club podcast. I'm James, and with me this week is my Wall Street co-founder and chief investor, Emmett Savage, and our head analyst, Rory Caron. Today, we're talking about Coinbase's plans to go public and what the company looks like as a potential cryptocurrency play, asking if we're in normal market conditions or not. And Emmett and Rory pitched me two stocks that they're looking at closely at the minute, including one old world turnaround. So guys, we have to start today's episode off with an apology. Um, Obviously, we take fact-checking very seriously here at my Wall Street, but unfortunately, an error slipped its way through in the last episode of this podcast. When we were talking about WeWork and the possibility of it going public via SPAC, Emmett, you claimed that in the original S1 filing was written by Gwyneth Paltrow's cousin. Uh, At the time, Rory and I kind of laughed you off the podcast but <laughs> since then we've been contacted numerous times to confirm that Rebecca Newman is indeed Gwyneth Paltrow's cousin so um, from me there sincere apologies for laughing at you at the time. That's the quality of research you get from me folks. The question is who should write our S1? Who should write my Wall Street's S1? We need to find someone famous and someone vaguely related to them maybe Bono's nephew or well, something. We might not have time to get into it today, Emmett, but you do have a, a, a tenuous connection to Tom Hanks, I believe. <laughs> is, this, is this the tweet he sent me that Rory always laughs at? This, this happened. I know you're both setting me up here, but yeah, okay, I'm going to tell the story if you're not careful, but yeah, I do. <laughs> we will well, come back to that, but I mean, it, it did happen, but Rory laughs me off the stage every time I tell the story, the way he did when I declared Gwyneth Paltrow's cousin, I should add. <laughs> we'll we'll, we'll uh, save that story for a special one-off <laughs> podcast, I think. We might need the full 40 minutes. Before we... Before we move on, Rory, I also want to come over to you because you pointed out to me uh, somewhat angrily, I think, during the week that we've been talking about Emmett's foresight in picking AMC, but we haven't got back to the fact that your pick of Eventbrite done pretty well too. Has it? Don't, don't say it has it. As <laughs> well, if you I didn't actually measure it. it. <laughs> just kept, I kept seeing a couple of big days. <laughs> you picked them as your, I think it was your turnaround stock or your contrarian pitch. Yeah, that's right. Um, probably about two or three episodes ago. And um, they've been on a bit of a run run since then, I think. Yeah, As I mean, I never actually measured it, but I just saw that they had gone up a lot. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, just more focus on me, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, moving on then. So 2020 was a massive year for IPOs, but 2021 is already shaping up to be an even bigger year with some of the most valuable private companies out there gearing up to go public over the next few months. Last week, Coinbase published its S1 filing ahead of its expected listing later on this month. For those of you that might not know, Coinbase is a digital currency exchange that allows users to exchange the likes of Bitcoin, Ethereum and other cryptocurrencies with so-called fiat currencies, as well as facilitating Bitcoin transactions and storage in around 190 countries around the world. Um, Coinbase is the largest cryptocurrency exchange in the US by trading volume, and it will also become the first major cryptocurrency exchange to go public when it does so later this month. Rory, I saw you've been tweeting a bit about Coinbase's S1 last week when it came out. Was there anything there that interested you about this company? 
yeah, uh, there's lots of things that interest me about the company. First of all, it's going public via direct listing. So there will be no IPO. There'll be no new shares issued. Yeah. That system of going public has kind of been popularized in recent years by Spotify, Slack and Palantir, which did it last year. Uh, They're going to be trading under the symbol coin. And yeah, looking in, I mean, Coinbase is one of those kind of companies that's been out there in the world for quite a few years. I'm sure most people have heard about them. Anyone who's kind of had any interest in the crypto market whatsoever will definitely be familiar with Coinbase. They've most definitely become the de facto exchange for the typical retail investor. And I think, you know, when people ask me about uh, investing in any cryptos, I tell them I don't know much, but Coinbase is is the one I know about and it's the one I think most people know about. And and they've done that very well. The, the, The thing that Coinbase is really focused on is that it's known as kind of probably the most kind of close to regulated exchange there is um they're also one of the few exchanges that had had no security issues whatsoever since the time they launched and you know there's been many stories of big exchanges that have lost billions of dollars worth of coins through hacking and and uh or founders just leaving with the key and never returning (laughs) um so that's kind of given coinbase quite a good reputation if for retail investors definitely the flip side of that is that by kind of getting regulated and, and, and becoming close to regulators coinbase is kind of doing the total opposite of what bitcoin was intended to yeah. be about um you know the whole idea of bitcoin and the blockchain is very much about this idea of decentralization of moving away from governments moving away from kind of the the old financial system and, and coinbase very much hasn't done that coinbase has kind of embraced uh regulation and so that's given them a bit of clout with retail investors, but also kind of probably harmed their reputation with more the kind of more hardcore ideological uh, cryptocurrency enthusiasts. A good example for, is that Coinbase, if you open up Coinbase account, Coinbase knows your password. Um, yeah. Now that's great when you hear stories about people who've lost thousands of Bitcoins because they forgot the little piece of paper that they wrote their 30 digit key on and can't find it now. Um, but again, this is important that the company knows your password. They know what's happening with your accounts. They have, you know, complied with regulators before when it comes to this kind of stuff. So that's kind of Coinbase's story in a nutshell or how they're kind of perceived in the market. When we look into the business, um, one of the things I noted was that they, I mean, if you look at just at their financial results, they had an incredible, now they only provided numbers for the last two years, which is a bit unfortunate because it doesn't really give us a huge amount of information to work on regarding the long-term prospects of the business. Mm. But, you know, like just looking at the figures they did give us, 2019, they made 482 million in revenue. In 2020, they made 1 billion, 141 million. So about 136% increase in revenue just in one year. On top of that, you know, they, they, uh, they spent basically nothing on on sales and marketing. So like 4% of their revenue goes on sales and marketing, which is, which is great to see a company growing at that rate and spending that little on sales and marketing. Now, they do spend a huge amount on, on G&A, general and administrative expenses. And I was kind of hoping they'd explain that in the S1, and they don't really. I'm going to go with the assumption that they spend an awful lot of money on insurance. But other than that, the company is generating very good net margins, spending very little on uh, sales and marketing and growing at a phenomenal rate. So on the face of it, it all looks very good. And you would think, wow, this is a, this looks like a very, very good business to invest in. However, there is something that's quite obvious that the when you when you kind of dig into the key metrics of the business is that 
it, it's very much tied to the rising price of the cryptocurrencies it supports. The growth of this business is very much tied to, to the increase in those cryptocurrencies. So here's a good example. In Q1 of 2018, the company had 23 million verified users. In Q4 2020, so just under two years later, they had 43 million users. So that's a really big jump. However, yep. if you look at the monthly transacting users, the users that were actually transacting on a, on a monthly basis, in Q1, they had 2.7 million monthly transacting users. However, that plunged the following quarter to 1.2 million, then got as low as 0 0.8 million uh, in 2019. And it only got back to those previous highs in Q4 2020. Now that to me shows a big problem. This, this, this company's revenue, which is dependent on transactions, they collect money based on how many transactions happen, is following the price volatility of Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, now the company claims they're launching new products and services that are gonna rectify that, but at the moment they are absolutely correlated, right? So yeah. the argument that Coinbase is kind of a pick and shovel play that's gonna succeed regardless of what cryptocurrency finds broad market appeal, I don't think is true just yet. So do you think the big risk with, with this company once it goes public is that its shares will will not exactly mimic, but will be heavily influenced by, you know, the volatile nature of the likes of Bitcoin and Ethereum and, and other cryptocurrencies? Yeah, well, it, at the moment, it's not even other cryptocurrencies. It's very much tied to Bitcoin. Just Bitcoin, um, yeah. And we see this across a lot of the company's metrics. You know, the assets on platform is currently around $90 billion. Uh, that's grown substantially over the last couple of quarters, but again, it's right alongside the rise in the price of Bitcoin. Um, 70% of the assets on the platform are Bitcoin, and that's the exact yeah. same percentage as it was in 2019, despite the fact that they've more than doubled support for the amount of assets that they're allowed to hold on the platform. So they're adding more assets to the platform, yet 70% of the assets are still Bitcoin. So that makes me ask what the narrative is around this business. You know, is it a safe way to play crypto? Um, a lot of people would say it is, but, and a lot of people like the idea of holding stocks rather than currency. So, you know, mm. holding stocks, you get your quarterly reports, there's a board of directors, um, and that's a lot more kind of transparent than the rather opaque world of digital currency. However, owning a company has risks too, of course. And if Coinbase is dependent on Bitcoin as it currently appears to be, you're just, I feel like you're just layering one risk on top of another. Yeah. Um, funnily enough, and this was something I thought was outrageous, was one of the risks disclosed on the prospectus for the IPO or for the, for the direct listing, as it were, was the identity of Satoshi Nakamoto, who is the anonymous <laughs> person or persons who created Bitcoin. Now, they say the risk to the business is that his identity would be revealed. Okay. Um, because there is a wallet with about 1.1 million Bitcoins out there. So that's worth about $50 billion that is assumed to be owned or controlled by Nakamoto. And if those coins are sold or transferred from that wallet, it could set off an absolute pandemonium within the cryptocurrency market. Um, so that's one of the weirdest risk uh, yeah. notes I I've like ever it, seen. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a nice bit of mystery in an S1, kind of jazzes it up a little bit. <laughs> like the, the modern day Kaiser Soze. Pretty much, yeah. It's just this like totally anonymous person somewhere. We don't even know where he is. And that could he could destroy owns, the company. He could totally destroy, <laughs> he could destroy the entire currency. He could destroy the company. So um, I, know, I know like, you know, when, when companies are filing S1s, they always list basically every single risk they can possibly think of as a kind of form of protecting themselves against litigation. 
but that's one of definitely the weirdest ones I've ever seen. Maybe they got somebody like James Patterson to write their S1. <laughs> <laughs> Emmett, what do you think about Coinbase? Have you done any research into them so far? And would they be a company you would be interested in, in kind of being tangentially related to, to cryptocurrencies as we're so often asked about? Yeah, actually, that was a great analysis, Rory. I have to say that was fabulous because you went way deeper than I had gone. Um, and I had looked through the S1 and that, that was very insightful. And what I, I did like what I saw. I mean, there were aspects that I didn't like. For example, the last time Coinbase raised funds was in 2018 at an $8 billion valuation. And of course, we've no time machine, but now at a $100 billion valuation, clearly there's been quite uh, a run and the, the yeah. value has certainly been been expressed to a large part and then other things that I wasn't you know especially fond of was the fact that the co-founder and CEO Brian Armstrong owns about I think about 11% of the business uh, of the class A shares and a whole pile like 22% of class B shares and then Mark Andreessen from the Silicon Valley Golden Set I guess or the the heavyweight investor as he's known owns about 25% of the business so basically the executives and directors have 54% of the voting power of the company, which is something, you know, that means every deal or every decision is fait accompli, which is unfortunate, but that's just the way it goes. But yeah, I did like... I did like what I saw and what I see and, and as Rory very well kind of articulated the fact that they spend nothing in getting customers. Um, I, I find it quite interesting that Tesla seemingly, when they bought their $1.5 billion worth of Bitcoin recently, did so apparently with Coinbase. So mm. that kind of validated it in my mind somewhat as the exchange of the de facto exchange even for giant businesses such as tesla just back to that point you made emmett about the valuation and it's something that a criticism that we hear quite a lot with companies going public and especially the raft of companies in the last couple of months and years going public is that you know all the value has been kind of squeezed out Mm -hmm. of them as as private companies and they kind of throw them to the public markets then to to get their money's worth um do you think that could be a risk with coinbase Yes, it could. It could be a risk. I mean, there's never been a moment in history where cryptocurrency has been hotter than it is now. But for all that we know, it's still in its infancy. But yes, I, it is a risk. I mean, a $100 billion business is not small. You know, mm. Coinbase, which is a brand that didn't exist, and I think most of our listeners' consciousness, let's say two years ago, is now kind of like half the size of Netflix. So it's it's a big business by any measure. You know, it's, uh, you know, it is a, it's a large cap company. It has all already arrived you know at the table of giants um so the 100 billion valuation is something that you know concerns me however i would say that you know we are very likely at the very beginning of a long journey for cryptocurrency as an asset type and it's creeping in to everybody's vernacular and Mm. very shortly will creep into everybody's wallet in some form or the other. It reminds me of a friend of mine, James, who hopefully is a listener. And years ago, he told me that he paid a, a guy to service his car with one Bitcoin. And yeah. uh, I, I service. I know, yeah. And this, by the way, was a couple of years after he had a whole pile of Bitcoin stolen off that Japanese exchange, that hack that happened a couple of years prior. So I do hope he has a few of them left. But if they are, they're in a Coinbase wallet and are safe and sound. Just on the <laughs> point on when they're going IPOing as well, or the fact that they're going public now, James, is that, of course, there's an awful lot of the bigger financial technology companies have embraced cryptocurrency over the last couple yeah. of months. PayPal, for example, Square, 
uh, Revolution in the UK and um, Robinhood obviously has, has gotten into it as well. So that's another element to think about. Coinbase has probably owned the mindshare uh, over the last couple of years for retail investors. But now there's companies where people probably already have an account set up, already have everything linked up and they're going yeah. to be able to buy and exchange crypto through those accounts. So that's another risk to worry about, I suppose. So Rory, would you buy or sell Coinbase if you were able to secure the direct listing price at a hundred billion dollar uh, market cap? Even I mean, a hundred billion is a lot of money, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you're yeah. talking a hundred X sales. Um, I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow the usual uh, thing where we wait kind of a couple of quarters, but if you if you're forcing me right now to say buy, sell, or hold, I would say sell. Okay, there you go. Let's move on then. And even though we're in the first week of March, 2021 has already been a bit of a roller coaster ride on the market. There was the whole GameStop short squeeze debacle that dominated headlines at the start of the year, as well as rising fears about inflation that rattled the market last week, and rising optimism about the rollout of a COVID-19 vaccine and the reopening of the economy. For anyone starting out in their investing journey, this might seem like the worst possible time to start building a portfolio. And indeed, we've recently got a few questions in from listeners asking about what a normal market condition might look like. Like Emmett, as an investor here with the most experience, I want to come to you first. Is there even such thing as a normal market? Well, James, I happen to have here in front of me a document from the good people at the Security and Exchange Commission or the SEC. Woo! Yeah, I know. It's good to get the SEC in. <laughs> well, they actually, so they're not notorious for writing like uplifting documents. They're very factual. And as most people know, the SEC, uh, they, they control the show of exchanges and all things to do with uh, investing in the US. So they, they kind of set the rules. And um, the reason I'm referencing it, James, is because they define what are normal market conditions. So I'm going to read their definition of a normal market condition and see what, let's just get our heads around it. So, quote, the term normal market conditions includes, but is not limited to, the absence of trading halts in the applicable financial markets generally, Mm. operational issues, for example, system failures, causing dissemination of inaccurate market information or forced major type events such as uh, natural or man-made disaster, acts of God, armed conflict, acts of terrorism, riot or labour disruption or anything of similar uh, intervening circumstances. So they have defined what normal market conditions are. Okay, so when we have the absence of the things I just listed, that is a, a normal market condition. So if we invert that, you know, bubbles, you know, bulls, bears, corrections, recessions, depressions, and like every other type of descriptor is in fact normal. So, mm. you know, you can live through a period of time and think, oh, this is an abnormal market it's been on a run for x number of years or it's crashed y percent in five minutes flat or whatever frame of reference you put on the market it is normal and i know i've, I've probably used this anecdote before on our podcast but the stock market is like a weather system it is mathematically chaos chaotic rather and that you know but the weather system in in you know normal times is is something that rain follows sunshine and yeah. in the market bulls follow bears and on the big picture we are in a normal market at the moment because america is not under attack we uh you know there's no trading halts and there's no force major events specifically mm. in the us so i think we are in normal market conditions and sure we can all look at the s&p 500 and see it's had a run and it had a, the fastest correction last year. But yeah, it's all normal. 
Yeah, absolutely. But I suppose recently as well, and maybe around the GameStop saga we, we saw a few weeks ago, that there was things like market halts and, and maybe not even halts put in by the NYSE, but halts put in by actual brokerage services. Yes. I suppose these aren't these aren't typical conditions, but no. are they maybe a sign of things to come you know with because a lot of new things have come in too to the, to the market mm, so yeah. low cost brokerages um high frequency trading amongst retail investors things like these um yes you're right the the backdrop is changing and and we uh, we can see events or as you say circumstances that are unique and haven't happened before um does that mean that we're moving into abnormal conditions? I don't believe so. So yeah. whether you suddenly get fixated with the proliferation of SPACs or whether you've noticed your broker has halted trading on certain stocks, you know, this in any one year, you will find that certain, I suppose, themes are happening. But fundamentally, the machine that is the stock market is functioning correctly. And, you know, are we so if the question is is posed in a different way, which is, are are we at an all time high? And is the market likely to, you know, fall in some way? Mm. Well, there's always some kind of correction on the horizon. Um, but once we kind of apply our long-term investing mindset, which is as close to 20 years or beyond, it doesn't really matter what the market throws at us in the next quarter or half year, or year, or even five years, which is a long yeah. time to sit it out. But once you have that mindset, you will prosper. And let's bring our bring ourselves back to academic studies on the matter, the probability, the mathematical probability of being down on a diversified portfolio of investments over 25 years is 0, 0.00. So in mm. all tra trading windows that were measured in a uh, academic study, I think it was Robert Schiller, actually economic prize winning uh, Robert Schiller, studied the market and found that the probability of being down a long-term mindset approaches zero the further out you go. Yeah. What are your thoughts on this, Rory? As, as Emmett mentioned, the market's at an all-time high while we're still in the grips of a global pandemic. That doesn't seem too normal to me. Yeah, what's the definition of a force majeure event? I would have thought a global deadly pandemic would fall <laughs> under that definition. Well, this is true, that's true. But in Ireland, it's when your garden furniture has been knocked over by the wind. That's like you look out and go, wow, that was a rough night. Um, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, random, ever, I know. I'm trying to think since we started the company whether there's been a normal market conditions we always seem to be talking about abnormal market conditions yeah maybe normal market conditions are conditions in which you're doing well and other people aren't and abnormal <laughs> ones are when you're not doing so well that yeah. seems to yeah. be uh, so like value investors would call this abnormal market conditions where growth investors are delighted uh, yeah so <laughs> i don't know <laughs> I, I suppose it seems to be a case to me that you know a lot of people, a lot of investors and, and maybe older investors have an idea of what the market should be. And obviously the market has evolved to to something new and it doesn't fit what they maybe learned at the start of their careers about, you know, how you maybe value stocks or, or how you, you assess the market overall. And that leads them to believe it's it's abnormal, but it's just the, the evolution of the market, you know, with, with increasing technology and things like that. It's also just the nature of markets, isn't it? Markets are always pushing the limits. They're always trying yeah. to find where the next limit is going to be, where everything go, goes terribly wrong. That's the whole idea of a free market. There's a, So I suppose that's just the way things are. And look, there's been an awful lot of changes. Like, as you said, coronavirus, a lot of people 
staying at home a lot of people with excess money excess time um that's just going to cause dramatic events like GameStop was uh, crazy I mean that definitely didn't seem like normal market conditions um no. so yeah it's it's just the nature of what's happening in the world around us and I don't or, or I don't I don't really think we've ever been in normal market conditions since we started so long long may it continue <laughs> <laughs> so just before we move on for this piece Emmett I want to just get to another common question we get here quite often too which is you know as you mentioned the market's at all-time highs and a lot of people write in asking if they should wait for a sell-off before they invest um, especially considering that so many commenters say that there's a crash coming or there's a bubble coming or a bubble bursting rather um, is that a feasible strategy especially for people who are starting off you know waiting until things drop a bit to, to get some skin in the game the problem there is you could be waiting forever like so as much as we can all look at the shape of the S&P 500 and see that it's at a high point now historically you know that that high point historically has been there as you go back through the years at any one time over the years it looked like we were near a high point that's the way the market goes businesses get more efficient and more profitable and so yeah should you wait for a downturn this is a question that I think most rational people will ask themselves but they equally know you know that it may never come or it may come at such a stage that the downturn doesn't even hit today's high point if you like so um I've I know I hate bringing it back to some kind of Zen quote, but you know the best time to plant a, the best time to plant a tree is today, and yeah. you know, um, or they say the best time to have bought a house was yesterday, and the second best time to buy a house is today. You know, so I, I I'm an absolute believer that if you have available cash today, that you can feasibly put away and not have to access for ten plus years, then you should buy shares today. And you know what? When you have a little spare cash. In weeks or months from now, go again. The market will either be up or down, but we're long-term investors here and that's really what you should do. Uh, uh, Hanging around and sitting on the sidelines on cash as the market goes up um, is a strategy that I've never employed and I've, you know, I've never been more than 5% in cash and and, uh, from those earliest days, I was all in. Every time I just put a small deposit to my brokerage in the late 90s and early 2000s, I was all in. I would just literally deposit the cash and invest it. Working from home must be working for you, Emmett. I've been thinking you've been sounding quite zen recently. That's right. I have that effect on people, James. <laughs> <laughs> so let's move on and have a look at some of the things that are going on in my Wall Street at the moment. We just added our brand new stock of the month pick to my Wall Street earlier this week. And if that wasn't enough, myself and Rory are sitting down right after we finish this recording to record the brand new episode of the Stock of the Month podcast. You can only find this in the My Wall Street app and it's going live next Monday, March 8th. So make sure you don't miss out on that. If you're looking for some other great stuff to listen to over the next few days, we also have a new guest series with our friends over at NOAA going live today. In this series, we take a look at Shmat Palapatia and his rise to become the so-called king of SPACs. Remember, NOAA, spelt N-O-A, offers professionally read versions of articles from the Financial Times, Bloomberg, The Economist, Harvard Business Review and a load more of top publishers. So you can find that latest series live in the NOAA app now. So as many of you probably know, March is Women's History Month and as part of our commitment to help everyone get started investing, the My Wall Street team has a full schedule of things going out across all of our channels that celebrate some of the most successful female entrepreneurs out there, along with information to help women get started investing. Last week, Emmett and one of our colleagues here at My Wall Street, Nicole, sat down to chat with Anna Sophie, founder of Female Invest, about some of the challenges that women face in the investing world. 
Anna Sophie is one of the partners at Female Invest, which is the largest financial educator for women in Northern Europe. It's a forum that tries to make investing easily accessible and manageable for everyone to join, counting more than 25,000 participants and members across 30 countries. This is a fascinating interview to listen in on, and I hope everyone listening will get some valuable takeaways. So enjoy. Hi, Anna Sophie. Welcome to the Stock Club. So first of all, um, tell us about your journey building Female Invest and a little bit about yourself. Uh, yes, so my name is uh, Anna and I'm 27 years old today and I have built a Female Invest, which is today Europe's leading financial educator targeting women. Uh, the journey actually started when I was a teenager. Um, I don't come from a background where anyone really invests or talks about money. But by the time I was 19, I learned that, that there was something called inflation and I learned that there was something called interest rate and that the combination of these two actually meant that my money was losing purchasing power when I had it in the bank. Um, and that's how my interest in investing started. Um, and then as I kind of dived into it, I learned that investing is a field um, with not a lot of women. And I also learned that this is a global problem that highly impacts women over the course of their lives because it impacts their uh, wealth. Um, and that's how the idea to found Female Invest came about. And then when I met my two co-founders at university, we decided to, to go for it and start Female Invest. Research shows that only 20% of investors are female. So why do you think that is? And what do you think are some of the biggest challenges women face when investing? I think there are multiple challenges. The first being the lack of role models. I think it goes for investing as it does with anything else. You need to see people who look like you in order to believe that you can do it yourself. Um, and right now there just aren't really any, uh, or there aren't many female role models out there at least. Uh, and then secondly, I think we still have a lot of stereotypes around women and money. Uh, we see it everywhere in society and even down to financial advisors where research shows that the, that the language used towards female banking customers, for example, is different than the language used towards uh, male um, customers where women are often advised to save more and, and take on less risk. Um, so I think those are two of the major problems right now, the stereotypes and the lack of role models. Yes, and I, I guess films like The Wolf of Wall Street doesn't help things. but. Do you see more young women investing now as there is more information available online and even on social media? It's quite interesting because we started Female Invest three years ago. And when we started, at least in Denmark, women and investing would be words that you would rarely hear in the same sentence. And it hadn't really changed for years, the share of female investors. And I think it's the same in many other European countries. Um, but then once we've seen now that the, um, the conversation has kind of started, uh, what we've seen is that many more women have started to invest and that many communities around money uh, for women have started to emerge. And I think those have played a very important role. Um, so yes, now we actually see just looking at the statistics, at least in Denmark, that more women have started to invest. And in Female Invest, we now have members in 56 countries, actually. So we also see it as a wave that's really spreading um, across Europe. And do you think it's also becoming more popular with older women as well? Are they using online tools? Uh, yes, just looking at the facts, we see that women uh, in all, at all ages actually start investing more. Um, so that's very exciting to see. And what's interesting is that right now, even though women invest less than men, they actually achieve better average results once, once they do get started. And that's in the entire world among both private and professional investors. So even though women don't invest a lot, they're actually pretty good once they get started. 
And did female invest see a surge in more women and um, wanting to learn about investing during the GameStop mania or the recent short squeezes in the US market? I think our listeners would be interested to know did that kind of translate in Denmark as well. So of course it's been a lot on the news and I think situations like with the GameStop stock is quite um, interesting because it puts light on at least short-term investing and we also got a lot of questions about it but in general it's not really interesting for long-term investors so we haven't really made any education. We explained the situation so that all of our members would understand what was going on, why it happened and the mechanisms behind it uh, but it's not something that we would recommend. I also saw on your social media that you have quite a strong stance on cryptocurrencies. It's not something you recommend to your uh, followers and users. No, in Female Invest, we focus on long-term investing because many of the women joining us are uh, very new. They don't have a background in finance and essentially they just want to invest their money to create a more independent future. And we just know, at least looking at history, that uh, stocks and investment funds and ETFs are probably at least historically have been the best way to do that. And you know that it has an underlying value when you buy these assets. So that's why we focus on those. And as you mentioned, um, research does show that women frequently outperform men uh, when buying stocks. And this is mainly because females use a long-term approach when investing and men typically go for riskier options. But do you think there are any other reasons why women make great investors? I think it's quite interesting because in my experience, the very insecurity that keeps women from investing in the first place is also the insecurity that makes them such great investors. Because like you say, they are on average less likely to believe that they can beat the market. Uh, so they hold on to their investments for a longer time. Uh, they take less uh, risk. Um, and then I think they also tend to do more uh, research maybe and follow kind of the overall um, pieces of financial advice. At least that's what research shows. Anna, Warren Buffett says that men have a great role to play in making sure women advance in their careers, in business and in the economy. How can men ensure that they are leveling the playing field? I think men play a vital role actually in ensuring gender equality, mainly because they are the ones in positions of power, like basically in every single industry, in every single country in the world, uh, men hold their positions of power. So if they don't make room and if they don't prioritize advancing a female talent as well, then we'll never achieve true equality. So I really do think that this is an, an issue for both genders and a solution that includes both genders as well. No doubt about it, Anna. Um, are there any investable trends that interest you at the moment for the long term? I think I'm quite interested right now in the digitalization uh, of things. I think the corona pandemic especially has made this very interesting. Uh, we see now that people uh, shop online like they've never done before. Um, also stuff that we didn't use to buy online to the same extent that we do today. Uh, groceries, for example. So I think the digitalization of Things is very interesting right now. What do you think is the difference between pay gap and the wealth divide? And what more do you think needs to be done to close the gender wealth gap? Yes. So the pay gap refers to the fact that women are paid less in in all jobs, even when they have the same level of experience and do the same job, essentially. Whereas the wealth gap refers to a much more uh, complex problem. Uh, the wealth gap encompasses both the pay gap, but also the fact that women tend to um, spend less time in the workforce, they tend to live longer, and then most importantly, they manage their money differently. And out of all of these things that create the wealth gap, 
uh, the only thing that women can change themselves today is the fact that they manage their money differently. Uh, and that's quite critical because when we look at the wealth gap, it's much larger than the pay gap itself. Uh, in Europe, for example, women retire with 35% less money than men on average. Um, and that's obviously much larger than the pay gap. And this is why I think investing is so interesting for women, because this is finally somewhere where they can take action today. You were very young when you set up your company. Did you, were you confronted with any problems um, being a young woman in business and a CEO as well? Uh, yes, a lot. And I think we also still are. Um, I would say a lot of it was internally within us. Uh, I think the lack of role models really affected especially me. Um, I don't know anyone growing up who would be female and run a business or who would be female and work with money-related matters. So it took a very long time for me to even uh, get mentally to the point where I thought it was something that I could do. Um, and then I think, of course, in the beginning, uh, when we tried to found a co company, I think many people didn't believe in us, both because we looked differently than the rest, but also because we were a lot younger. Um, I think luckily now we managed to turn it around uh, but of course I still feel like we have to be much more careful with how we uh, dress how we convey our messages uh, kind of it's a very fine line often about being um, ambitious and being a little bit uh, bitchy I think it can easily be perceived so it's actually something that we discuss uh, a lot in the team to make sure that we never uh, cross uh, that line and then also we just raised our first funding round now and then um, as you probably know then in uh, Scandinavia only 1% of funding goes to female founded startups um, so at least looking at those numbers there are also some unique um, challenges but it worked out uh, luckily. And Emmett you actually had an interesting story where my Wall Street was going to be female focused. Yeah that's true actually so when John Tyrrell my co-founder and I started the business one of the things we wanted to do was to build a product that was um that at least didn't have any gender bias and we have, our first conversation was let's build a product that unlocks the potential of women investors because as you said it has been proven and documented that women make better stock investors uh, as a consequence of their mindset so we set out with that kind of very, very first idea. And clearly <laughs> the fact that we're two men, it just was a little bit much. So we, we said everything that my Wall Street will do will be gender neutral. There'll be no like alpha names with bulls faces and horns and steam and all this imagery, which is kind of uh, historical and very much alpha male. So everything we do is very much aligned with what you've said, Anna, and I really do admire what you're doing. Um, I'm a great believer in the rising power of women in business, in boards and leadership, in community, and, and it's long overdue. And I, I absolutely wish you every success with your business because I truly admire it. Thank you. What would be your best piece of advice uh, to a woman that wants to start investing? My best piece of advice would be to just do it. Uh, you can read so much about it but the best way to learn it is to just jump in and i think there are so many myths around investing uh, many people think that you need to be uh, rich that you need to be an expert or that you need to spend a lot of time doing it and none of that is true uh, you can start with a very small amount of money and the only thing you really need to know is that historically the stock market has always gone up in the long run which means essentially that if you just manage to diversify your investments and get the average market return, then the only skill you really need is patience. So what's been the journey for Female Invest and what are you doing now? 
So Female Invest was founded back when I was studying and I met my two co-founders at business school actually. And we all had a background working in the financial industry where we realized that we were uh, the only women and where we learned that this lack of women, not just in the industry, but among private investors is a global problem. Um, then we got the idea to found Female Invest and we initially just wanted to create a small community for ourselves where we could share um, stories and investment advice with each other. Um, but as soon as we launched it, the snowball just started rolling and the community started to grow. And as a result, we hosted physical events, which more than 25,000 women ended up attending physically. Um, and then at some point we just reached a demand that we couldn't meet anymore, not just in Denmark, but also abroad. And that's when we decided to um, scale digitally. And then we created the e-learning platform that we have today with videos, webinars, um, articles and so on, where we work with uh, experts in the financial industry um, globally. Um, and today we have members in 56 countries there and we turned it into a business. So we have 11 employees actually right now uh, working on it. Um, and you can follow also our journey both on Instagram, LinkedIn, uh, Facebook and uh, Twitter. We recently launched as well. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Anna-Sophie, for your time and for speaking to us here on Stock Club today. Perfect. Thank you so much and have a nice day. <laughs> Thanks again to Anna-Sophie for joining us. And if you want to find out more about Female Invest, make sure to check them out at femaleinvest.com. Let's move on to the elevator pitch, guys. And this week, I've given you guys an easy one. Um, all I want you to do for me is pitch a stock that you're looking at or researching at the minute and tell me why you like them or why you don't like them. Rory, I'll come to you first. What stock do you want to pitch me today? Yeah, I have a really interesting company that's, it's you know, it's a long time off becoming public. It's going through this kind of SPAC, whatchamacallit, what's it called? SPAC <laughs> process. <Rouge. laughs> the SPAC <laughs> process, yes, the SPAC process. It's get, getting SPAC'd, getting it's SPAC'd. Getting SPAC'd. Uh, and it's not one of Chamath's, it's a, an un-Chamath's back. Uh, okay. It's merging with a company called Osprey Technology, which current market ticker is SFTP. The company is actually called Black Sky. Yeah. And Black Sky, basically what Black Sky do is they're a first mover in a new category called Real-Time Earth Observation. Their goal is to have a network of 30 imaging satellites which will be able to capture imagery from anywhere on the planet every 30 minutes. They currently have five of those in orbit and plan to add nine more this year. Um, so their whole business is basically low-cost data capture and on-demand delivery of an, uh, analytics. Yeah. In 2020, they made $22 million in revenue. They're projecting revenue in 2025 of $546 million. Uh, which is huge growth. Of course, that's just a projection. But their use cases for their satellites is pretty significant. So they have things like pipeline monitoring for big industry, inventory monitoring, underwriting for insurance, real-time surveying for the mining and manufacturing industry, uh, crop health monitoring for the agricultural sector, monitoring the effects of climate change and disaster management. So basically, yeah. it's uh, companies can hire out these satellites or, or, or buy the data of these satellites to see... Uh, satellite imagery in real time over their properties mm. or over or anywhere in the world so i think it's a really interesting business they seem to have a good uh, management team with lots of experience in the sector so we're keeping an eye on them but yet like i said i don't think they're even going on the market still july but yeah it sounds like an an entirely new industry they're creating there yeah it seems like they they claim to be the first mover in this in this thing obviously there's there's uh, global satellites around at the moment but it's very expensive this is they're launching these kind of what they call small sats much smaller cheaper satellites to orbit the world and claim they can deliver um great data and great great imagery on the back of it 
cool. What's the name of that company again? It's called Black Sky. I think it's it's going to go under the ticker BKSY, but it's merging with Osprey Technology, which is currently SFTW. They could have picked less of an evil villain name for the company. In the I like that. I like <laughs> Black, I like Black Sky. Sky. No. Which is the perfect segue into my pitch, by the way. <laughs> All right, Emmett, what evil company are you pitching? Well, I'm going to pitch a company that's actually listed on the London Stock Exchange or LSE, where share prices are quoted in British pennies as opposed to US dollars. So you can often look at the share price of a company on the LSE. And if you've forgotten that that's the case, think it's the share price is preposterous. But anyway, the company, this is a company I'm invested in. And I'm going with the iconic luxury car maker Aston Martin um, okay. as a kind of wild card turnaround pitch. Um, so I don't know if any of the evil geniuses in in uh, any of the Bond movies ever got were inside one of Bond's Aston Martins. But anyway, that was the very kind of <laughs> tenuous, tenuous link. link. <laughs> yes, exactly. So uh, Aston Martin uh, Lagonda, as it's known, or AML.L as its ticker, is, is well known, I think, to everybody. And, and it's a business that's currently valued at about £2.3 billion. Pounds, um, and its share price is 2,021 pennies, which is 20 quid and 21p. Um, so uh, now the, the thing about Aston Martin is that it is like to build a pure luxury brand that's known the world over is extremely difficult. So like if you think Ferrari or Cartier or any of the premium, premium luxury brands, it's extremely expensive to to build that brand. And when you build it, you actually have pricing power and generally you never discount your goods or you're, on, you're in for trouble. So um, the thing is, there are some estimates that Aston Martin's brand alone is worth 2.6 million pounds. Now, wow. as I said, the entire business at the moment is worth 2.3 million pounds. And I suppose uh, there's good reason for there to be heavy weight on Aston Martin's shoulders and its share price is floating near its all-time lows. It's, you know, it's up 100% from its absolute all-time low, but relatively speaking, only a couple of years ago, it was 11 quid and today it's, it's you know, uh, 20 quid. Or sorry, it's uh, it was 110 pounds. Sorry, it's split adjusted only a few years ago and now it's 20 pounds. But um, in its 108 years since its founding, Aston Martin has declared bankruptcy seven times. So, you know, it's been no like smooth ride, if you excuse the expression. Like, this has not been an easy investment to hang on to. So, like, yeah. for just to, like, if we just take into our field of view, other car manufacturers like Lucid, the electric car manufacturer startup in the US, it's now currently valued at something like 7 billion quid. So, like, a car that a manufacturer has shipped almost no cars is valued at a multiple of Aston Martin. Yeah, yeah. And anyway, getting to the point, last year they named their new CEO, a guy called uh, Tobias Moyers, who was formerly the chief executive um, of Mercedes high performance AMG division, where he oversaw its growth from a, a niche engine making business to one of its best performing divisions of Mercedes. And so basically, this is a turnaround play. They have one car or kind of um, crossover. It's called the DBX. It launched. It's getting great reviews. If this vehicle isn't a hit, I think Aston Martin will be filing for its eighth um, bankruptcy because wow. <laughs> um, the figures are not pleasant. But anyway, 
early indications are this DBX, this premium priced kind of crossover vehicle is selling well. And I had a look they, about two weeks ago, they published their uh, end of year, 31st of December, 2020 uh, balance sheet. And things seem to, seem to be trend, trending in the right yeah. direction. So it is a, basically what we're, what we're looking at here is a turnaround play on a premium luxury brand that might go the way of every other British car manufacturer. Sorry, not every other, but British. the British car industry is a graveyard. Like it yeah. is not known for successive, successful turnarounds or for brands that are, are dominant today. But I just think Aston Martin's brand alone, I think, is something that is worth more than the stock price reflects at the moment. So a real make or break kind of pitch. It's a make or break, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's very old world compared to uh, yeah. Rory's. And by the way, just before I go too far into this subject, like they're not even going to go electric till 2026. That's a huge wow. risk. I mean, that's yeah. like the, the party's on right now. And, and the problem is that like uh, traditional manufacturers are all demonstrating that swapping over to EL electrical is really difficult when you when you have a million legacy processes and skills and factories that are unsuited. So moving from your traditional Aston Martin big, you know, fuel guzzling machine to something s- slick and electrical is so Lucid do have the advantage on, on the luxury car front when it comes to electricity. They aren't encumbered by old processes. But yeah, I think they're going to make it. Cool. So that's about it from this week's Stock Club. Don't forget about all the great new stuff in my Wall Street at the moment. If there's anything you want us to discuss or explain on the next episode, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter as always at, at MyWallStreetHQ. Or email us at pod at mywallstreet.com. That's P-O-D at mywallstreet.com. Don't forget to subscribe to Stock Club. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review for us on whatever platform you listen to us on. That's it from us here today. Stay safe and we'll talk to you in two weeks. Happy investing. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.